Um, on September 26, 1985, Berdella answered a phone call from an acquaintance named James Ferris, who asked to stay at Berdella's home for a short time. Berdella accepted with the specific intention of kidnapping Ferris, whom he arranged to meet at a bar that evening. Despite the brutality to which he had subjected his first three victims, Berdella claimed that Ferris was the first victim upon which he intentionally inflicted torture. He also informed investigators there were occasions during the his final three victims' period of captivity when he ceased making additions to his abuse logs because he assumed the victim would not be able to make it much longer. Berdella brought Ferris home and drugged him with crushed tranquilizers he had concealed in a meal, then tied him to the bed before torturing him, before torturing him for almost constantly for approximately 27 hours. Pretty much 27 hours straight. Um, the torture included repeated ministering of 7,700 volt electrical shocks to the shoulder and testicles for up to five minutes in each instance. Um, so, uh, let me see something. So a, my guess is he was using maybe a cattle prod. Um, a taser like we used in the mil in the military and law enforcement is fifty thousand volts. Um, I want to say. And you said this was seven hundred something volts. Seven thousand seven hundred. Oh, seven thousand. Okay. Uh, well, typically a cattle prod is four thousand. So this is about. Just a little under two cattle prods being yeah, used. Yeah, so I'm not sure exactly what he used. He never really put it in his journals what he was using. Um, or maybe he was just using the battery with alligator clips. Uh, depending on the battery. There are some batteries that only have, you know, it depends. You know, a car battery might. No, you need, it would have to be something bigger. I would yeah. say like a portable transformer probably so, would be the thing. We're not sure exactly what he used. I know it wasn't a taser because five minutes with a taser, it would have stopped the guy's heart. It would have killed him. Yes. Um, we're, we're only allowed to do it for 30 seconds at a time. Um, and even that's pushing it. Um, uh, he also was doing acupuncture via hypodermic needles to the neck and genitals. So that'll kind of make you squirm. Um, Ferris gradually became delirious, but Berdella continued his physical and sexual assaults until he noted in his log that Ferris was unable to sit up more than 10 to 15 seconds. The next entry read very delayed breathing. And finally, Berdella noted that Ferris died with a slang term he had used in his career as a chef, 86. Um, so 86ing something is it's off the menu. So Ferris was 86th. Um, the next victim is Todd Stoops. Todd Stoops was a 23 year old drug addict and occasional prostitute who alongside his wife had twice lived briefly at Berdella's house in 1984. 
After Stoops and his wife moved out of this out the second time, Berdella did not see him again until a chance encounter at Kansas City Liberty's Memorial Park on June 17, 1986. Berdella invited again. This is this is almost like, being- almost like a spider, just spider weaving yeah. a web, and the flies just keep this flying is into him. stuff just being thrown in his lap and him taking opportunity. Berdella invited him to his house with an offer of lunch, which uh, with added incentive of sex, as Stoop stated, he needed $13 to purchase drugs. This is the eighties. I'm not sure exactly what he's purchasing for $13. Um, I would assume that eighties was big with meth like it is now. Um, in the Kansas City area, I would imagine so. Yeah, Kansas City was huge with meth. Um, so I would assume maybe a dime of meth. Um, for the it, it might have also been cocaine. Cocaine was very, very prevalent, been, but yeah. not not for thirteen dollars though. Uh, meth was easier to get your hands on, and it was co- cocaine, especially in the eighties, was a rich man's drug. Um, True. It, that's, it was all, because of having to because of having to cut it and everything, it was a lot more expensive. So thirteen dollars of meth was probably a dime bag, which is why we call it a dime bag, ten dollars. Um, so it's probably meth. Um, Bordello would later stress to investigators he had been extremely physically attracted to Stroops or to Stoops, and this victim was held captive for two weeks before he died with him gradually increasing his captive's terror to make him a cooperative and incapacitated sex slave. Berdella used electrical shocks through Stoops closed eyes and an attempt to blind him and injected drain cleaner into his larynx to silence his screaming. I don't know where he got the information that this would work. Because it's he's so electrical shocks through the eyes. His eyes are closed. Could it work? Possibly. It's going. It's it may at the very least cause temporary blindness. It's gonna affect the blood vessels in the eyes. Um, the injecting drain cleaner into the larynx. Depending on depending right. on how he's doing it. It's not even going to get to where he needs it to. It's going to stay dermal at the most part and and coagulate basically in the neck. He would he would have been better off making him swallow the drain cleaner, and that would have destroyed the larynx. Also, um, would have killed him a lot a lot quicker. Oh yeah, it too, because but again, I I I don't know where he thought he was. I think we're, I I think honestly, based on this, and again, I think you said earlier, he's probably reading, I wouldn't be surprised if he's making a lot of frequent trips to the library. Like you said, if if Google is around back then, I'm sure his search history would be very interesting. The FBI would um, But I I really feel like this is somebody who is just doing – is self-taught. He is literally just doing what he thinks. He's using – like, oh, chemical, inject. That'll go there. Not obviously – this is not somebody who's a trained medical professional or anything like that who would know, like, uh, 
you're going to need to do a lot more than just syringe a bunch of Drano into a guy's neck in order to shut him up. Um, This whole, this is where I think to me, when I was, when I was also looking at this is to me where almost the, the crescendo of his depravity, Uh, he literally found somebody that fell into his lap and he was very much attracted to it. So this was somebody he was, not going to let slip away yeah. like his last previous previous three victims who, who for very varying degrees or whatever he probably didn't care too much over i mean he didn't care about any of these victims anyway but yeah. this one in his depraved state he was not he was going to exp- get the fullest experience as the as the best way can, i can say it without sounding just just that's way I can say it. So, and I mean, at this point, this is the longest anybody's been held. This is two weeks. Um, during his second week of capture, Stoops asked Berdella for a soft drink and a sandwich. When Berdella refused, Stoops burst into tears. On June 27th, he ruptured Stoops' anal wall with his fist, causing bleeding and discharge. Uh, you can only imagine. I mean, Berdella wasn't the biggest guy but a fist is a fist um and you can only imagine the pain of that uh, on top of everything else that's happened um towards the end of stoops captivity he tried to feed his captive ice cream and soup although stoops wasn't able to keep anything down by the final day of his captivity stoops was so weak Bradella later stated he had been unable to breathe in a sitting position Uh, On July 1st, 1986, Stoops died. A forensic pathologist later testified that the ruptured anal wall caused septic shock, which proved fatal. So he didn't die from all the chemicals being pumped into him, the electrocution and all of that. He died from being fisted too hard, basically. It's... Yeah. Um... In the spring of 87, Berdella became friendly with a 20-year-old named Larry Wayne Pearson. Keep in mind that in 87, Robert Berdella is in his 40s, so this kid is young enough to be a son, basically. Um, Larry Wayne Pearson. This casual friendship began with when Pearson entered his shop and explained to Berdella that, as a child, he held an interest in both witchcraft and wizardry. You're a wizard, Larry. Um, shortly, unfortunately, 1987 was before Harry Potter. Otherwise, this probably would have saved this kid's life. Um, shortly thereafter, Pearson temporarily lodged with Berdella and willingly performed chores around his home as a means of paying rent. According to Berdella, he did not initially intend to capture Pearson, but formed to form the plane to do so on June 23rd. Happy birthday, dad. That's my dad's birthday. Uh, he was 17 this year. In 1987. Um, uh, let's. Uh, he bailed Pearson out of jail. Uh, the young man became jokingly referring to his practice of robbing gay men in Wichita. That evening, Berdella ensured Pearson became intoxicated before injecting him with cl- uh, chlorpromazine and moving him down to his basement where he found Pearson's hands above where he bound Pearson's hands above his head then linked the rope he had used for this purpose to a brick column before injecting Pierce, injecting peering, Pearson's larynx with drain cleaner. There it goes again. He th- uh, 
so this is probably what he was using. He then brought an electrical transformer to the basement. It's probably where that 7,700 volts is coming from as an electric transformer. Mm-hmm. Um, according to Berdella, Pearson was by far the most cooperative of his six murder victims. As cooperative as you can be. Um, on the fifth day of his captivity, having by this stage endured torture such as the repeated administration of electrical shocks with a transformer and the breaking of several hand bones with an iron rod to render him submissive. Berdella deduced Pearson had earned his trust as to his continued cooperation in his sexual and physical abuse. As a form of reward, keep this in mind, this is a reward, Pearson was moved to the second floor with Berdella first informing Pearson that if he continued to cooperate, he would not continue to inflict as much pain upon him as he had done so while he had been held captive in the basement. So because he was he had earned his trust, he will torture him less and bring him upstairs. Um, throughout the latter part of his six weeks of captivity. So now we're up to six weeks. We went from two to six. Um, during his, the latter part of his six weeks of captivity, Pearson trained himself to sleep without moving in order that in order for him to not antagonize Berdella and thus invite further torture or being returned to the basement. So we can sum up here that Berdella was sleeping next to him every night. Um, after six weeks of captivity, uh, Pearson was performing, uh, willingly performing oral sex on Berdella. Um, and he bit into Berdella's penis before screaming he could not continue to tolerate his ongoing poor treatment. In response, Berdella cured Pierce, killed Pearson by first bludgeoning him into unconsciousness with a tree limb, then suffocating him with a bag and ligature before driving to the hospital to receive treatment for his wound. Pearson's body was later dismembered in the basement and his head initially stored in a plastic bag inside Berdella's freezer before being buried in the backyard. So, a head for a head? Ugh. <laughs> uh, Forgive the gallows humor, everybody. This is how we get through our day. Yes. yes. Um, all right. So, this next one... I'm going to kind of go from what I was reading here to this new thing because we're getting into Chris Bryson, which is the final victim. Um, One spring night, Chris Bryson walked into the lurid glow of the streetlights. A copper-colored Toyota Tercel circled the block. Most of the hustlers knew that car. All of the hustlers were familiar with the driver, heavyset man who wore rimmed glasses and had a mustache. Um, we can get from this that Robert Perdella went and picked Bryson up. Um, this was 1 a.m. March 29th, 1988. Uh, basically, Robert Perdella picked him up. He they had a conversation 
Bradella asked if uh, Bryson wanted a beer, uh, told him that they were in the back of the car. Uh, Bryson said yes, got a beer, asked if Bradella wanted one. Bradella said no. When Bryson opened his beer, the man said, my name's Bob, introduced himself, uh, and Chris introduced himself as well. Um, when Bradella asked what Chris had been doing, and he said, oh, just partying a little, and Bradella asked what kind, and Chris said, a little Coke. Um, Bradella said, that's cool, I'm not that into uppers. I'm more into downers. Uh, Then Bob told Chris what downers he took. And Berdella asked if he had ever taken any. And Chris said no. And Berdella stated that he had Valium at his place and drove on. Chris assumed that they were going to Berdella's house. At one point, uh, Berdella said to him, what are you into? And interpreting this as a sexual innuendo, Chris stated whatever. Um, They pulled up to Charlotte Street. They both got out and went into Bob's house. Uh, Once inside, Bradella got Chris another beer and encouraged him to make himself comfortable. Uh, Bradella asked Chris if he wanted to go upstairs. Chris said, sure. So they reached the top of the stairs and Bradella cracked him in the back of his skull with a two foot long iron pipe. Vision was blurred. He fell face first on the landing on top of the staircase, still holding his beer. And apparently it got crushed underneath him. Um, Bradella then injected him with a syringe. We can only guess that it's the same same concoction as what he was giving the others. Um, Bradella dragged Chris into the bathroom. He propped him into a sitting position, went into his bedroom and brought back a Polaroid 600 camera. I would like to state that this is not unique to, to this victim. Um, Bradella had been taking Polaroids of, every single victim and placing them in the journal during the torture, showing the different levels of torture. Um, He took a photo of Chris. Chris's eyes were slightly ajar, but he was barely cognizant of what was going on. He laid Chris down on the floor, took a photo framed from the waist up. Chris's arms were bent over his head and his mouth was open. He put the camera aside and removed Chris's clothes. Having finished with that, he snapped two more photos from the waist up. Just odd to me that he did the waist up. Especially being a sexual sadist. Why did he not take it from the waist down? Perhaps, forgive my speaking here, but perhaps because he was not aroused. He was not hard yet. And that made a difference to him. Um, but it's it's just weird that he undresses him and still only takes the pictures from the waist up. Definitely um, unusual, but, I mean, trying to get into the mind of somebody like this yeah. is... Um, let's see. He put the camera down again, dragged Chris into the bedroom by his legs. He lifted Chris onto the bed 
in the supine position. He tied Chris's hands together with bathrobe sashes. Uh, I don't get the bathrobe sashes because he had rope, obviously. He had just used some of it. Um, so he's using a softer material, uh, material that's able to be broken out of easier as well. So it's a little odd. Um, now from what we're getting here, these, I will just say this account is from Chris himself. Um, uh, most of this is coming from Chris and not Bob. Um, so, uh, and some of this may be a mix between the two because obviously at this point Chris was unconscious. So I think we're kind of going back and forth between what Chris has stated and what was written in the journals. Um, he nodded the other ends of the sashes around the bedpost. He walked to the other end of the bed and straightened Chris's legs. Chris woke, looked down at Bob for a brief moment, and passed out again. Using a thin cord... He tied Chris's legs to the front bedpost. He wrapped a washcloth around another length of cord and tied the cord around Chris's head. He stuffed the washcloth into Chris's mouth. He finished him off by attaching a dog collar and leash to his neck and bound the leash to the bedposts. Again, part of that control, that, sex, that sexual sadism, maintaining control. He is property now. Um, he is like an animal to him. Uh, he fully owns and controls him. Uh, Bob slept in another part of the house for a few hours. He returned to the second floor bedroom around 5.30 a.m. He came armed with a spiral stenographer's notebook, the notebook that we know he was written in, writing in. Um, it had already been filled with dozens of pages of cryptic notations. Uh, and at this point, he had written an entry in nine months. So we had nine months from one victim to the next. So that's a big span for a serial killer. It is very unusual. There's, there, but there have been serial killers who have gone uh, almost two decades between. Well, uh, a lot of times, what that is is a lot of times they're locked up. There, something has happened to get them to stop. He never had that. We don't know why he stopped for nine months. It just and that's it's a weird little time for him to have just not done anything. Um, and obviously he didn't do any killing; otherwise, it would have been in the notebook. Um, let's see. Uh, he wrote Tuesday Tuesday a.m. He placed the notebook inside a cabinet near the front of the bed. He got undressed and advanced towards the bed. He creeped between Chris's legs, hoisted Chris's body up slightly. Without actually penetrating him, he engaged in his clo in his clo uh, closest. He had frictional sex. I can't talk tonight. Um, with this having run its course, he inserted one of his fingers into Chris's anus. Um, so this, he's, we don't know why. I, I think with the last victim, he was angry and that's why he shoved his fist. This one, he is sexually attracted. So he is taking it slow. 
um, where Chris hasn't angered him. Um, he took up the notebook again. He wrote 530-6, tied on bar, slash FRT, FU, finger. Um, which he has little shorthand for stuff. So we can you can kind of guess what FRT, front, FU, you can guess what that is. And then finger. Um, 7.30 a.m., Bob injected Chris with some kind of clear fluid. He injected it into his shoulder. And this was uh, acepromazine again. Um, he logged the dosage and location of where it was injected. And he put the notebook aside. Bob went back to bed and placed a pillowcase over Chris's head. At 8 a.m., Chris woke up. He became cognizant of the gag around his mouth. He wasn't given to breathing out of his nose, so this frightened him. He began to struggle against the restraints. When Berdella entered the room, he lifted the pillowcase partway from Chris's face. Chris couldn't see clearly, and the bedroom looked fuzzy to him. All he saw were shifting shapes. He tried to force his hands out of their restraints. Bob jabbed his index finger into Chris's eye. Chris couldn't react to the pain vocally because the gag was so taut. He left the room, but returned minutes later, and Chris had begun to panic. Bob came back in the room with a cotton swab in his possession. It had been soaked in either bleach or ammonia, and he poked it into both of Chris's eyes. Chris tried to writhe away from him, but the restraints were too securely fastened. His eyes were stinging. It felt like he was trying to burn his eyeballs. He struggled more, making no headway towards release. So he is taking this bleach and ammonia on a Q-tip to Chris's eyes in an attempt to blind him so he can't see what's going on. Um... Bob was very resourceful and well-equipped when it came to torture. He climbed on the bed with a two-foot iron bar. He perched on Chris's chest. While straddling him, he pummeled his hands with the bar repeatedly. Bob spoke to Chris, but he was not understood. Chris was too distracted by the pain to focus on anything else. Um, we can guess that he broke his hands during this. Um Eesh. Which, I mean, it's your hands and your feet are where you have the most bones. So they are very brittle. Uh, Bob disengaged from Chris's chest and got off the bed. Chris felt a sharp pain in his legs. His vision having improved, he looked down and saw that Bob had attached two electrical clamps to his legs. Wires led from the clamps to the edge of the bed and beyond. One clip was attached to his testicles, the other to his upper thigh. Bob stood nearby with an electrical transformer. He sent small jolts through Chris's body. Every time he electrocuted Bryson, his body went rigid. Bob juggled this task with taking Polaroids of Chris. Chris didn't scream for fear that his appeals for clemency might only be answered with more torture. Once he was finished with the electrocutions, he gave Chris two more injections. The first was five cc's of uh, acepromazine to restrict the ability to resist. 
The second was to his neck, and it was two cc's of drain cleaner. Again, trying to get rid of that ability to scream. Uh, it makes no sense to me, but... And he actually spoke to him and said, This is just for my security, but if I ever catch you yelling again, I'll put it straight into your vocal cords, and you won't have a voice anymore. Um, with this, it's... The, the way he's speaking to them is, I don't know if you know who the Toy Box Killer is. Um, I'm not familiar with that that's one. That's one we will touch on because the Toy Box Killer, they he had partners. Uh, he had a female partner and he had a box truck. Like, like a moving truck that he had a whole thing set up, had a torture chair and videotaped it and everything. And it was brutal, but his whole thing was speaking to them like this. Uh, we'll definitely touch on, on him. Um, and a toy box killer was pretty recent. I believe he was in the eighties or nineties. Uh, Let's see. His name was David Parker Ray. Uh, let's see. He, well, oh, I'm sorry. No, he was in the 50s. Um, oh. But he he got caught in 99. Um, and he died right. He died in 2002. Oh. And this, this man is... Um, and what we're going to start doing, guys, is... Uh, every week we'll go ahead and post a a picture of whatever our topic's going to be for that week. Um, so we didn't do it this week, but next week we'll go ahead and post the topic that Ben's going to talk about. Um, and so whenever we get to like the Toy Box Killer, BTK, we'll go ahead and post our pictures and let everybody know what we're going to be talking about. Um, three hours later... Uh, uh, Bob pulled the pillowcase off Chris completely uh, and Chris passed out three hours later. Bob checked up on Chris uh, with his notebook. He wrote 1145 quiet. Um, he then injected five more CCs of acepromazine, uh, put it in his leg and he notated in his log that Chris had a slight react to the shot. 3.30, Bob was hooked. He hungered for more action with Chris. At this point, when we're given the times, we can assume that this is coming straight from the journal. I tried to find the actual journal, and it has since been removed from the internet. Um, so all the accounts that I have to get from these journals are from are from other articles. Um Luckily, most articles, uh, especially the one I'm reading from now, went into good detail before the stuff was removed. Um, but 3.30, Bob was hooked. He hungered for more action with Chris. He returned to the bedroom. Chris was asleep. His eyes were swollen. Bob went at him with a syringe filled with three cc's of penicillin so he wouldn't get infections. So he's finally trying to, it's not, this is not how this works. Just so everybody knows you don't just get to give three cc's of penicillin, which is not much. It's like this much. It's not a lot. Three cc's of penicillin is not going to stave off any infections he's getting from this stuff. 
seems like he it really it really does seem like when again when we were I was when we were researching this it just it really struck me it's just like this this guy doesn't really know a, a, a lot no. he seems to just going off He's of it. he really is he's winging it and i'm i it is it amazed me that they just never caught on to this i i think the only smart thing he ever did was the way he got rid of the bodies um Bob walked, to, Bob walked to the foot of the bed and untied Chris's legs. As he walked around him, he told him that he was now his sex toy. He also informed him that he would never get another glimpse of the outside world. As Bob put it, the only thing you need to think about is you, me, and this house. Don't try to fight me, or you'll just get more of what you had earlier. He reminded Chris of the metal pipe and the electrical shocks. He also mentioned a wooden glove of which Chris had not been aware. He says wooden glove. The only thing I can guess is he attached wood to a glove and would beat somebody with it. We haven't seen that yet. Um, Bob told Chris he could only speak with his permission. He would get this permission from or when Bob placed his hands over his mouth. The consequence of speaking out of turn would be a thump with the iron bar. Chris was still naked. Bob turned him over on his stomach. He advanced up between Chris's legs and sodomized him. Chris squeezed his thighs together tightly, desperate for the rape to end. After Bob ejaculated, he took a cold rag and wiped Chris's buttocks. He turned him over on his back. Bob spoke to Chris in the most soothing tone of voice. And this is the quote from the beginning. You did not choose to be here, but you are. For you to survive being here and for you to, you know, make it, it could either be rough or it could be easy. If I grow to like you and trust you, then I could do special things for you, such as buy you cigarettes, pick up a movie on the way home from work, and so forth. Chris didn't answer because he was gagged anyways. Bob told him that if he did not cooperate, he would remain tied to the bed until Bob was ready for another round of sex. It was either that or he would move Chris to the basement and tie him up there. He told Chris he liked him so much he didn't want to share him. He didn't want to share him for the time being. However, had Chris done anything to vex Bob, he would be referred to people Bob knew that would also be more than happy to take advantage of a handsome young boy flesh in captivity. Bob was spending more time with Chris now. The evening of that day, after he gave Chris another shot of penicillin, again with his penicillin, Bob removed the gag from Chris's mouth. He pulled the dog collar off of his neck, and he brought out the Polaroid camera and took some more photos. After another bout of rape, Bob gave Chris his consent to go to the bathroom. Bob noted this in his journal, along with the fact that Chris's voice was hoarse. He washed Chris's mouth out. He gave him a soft drink and talked with him. Bob asked him for his age, address, and date of birth. Chris told him he was married with a son. Bob gave him some cigarettes and another soft drink. After 9 p.m., he gave Chris another injection. He logged the exact amount of drugs he was administering. He warned Chris there would be dire consequences for attempting to escape or assault him. 
As for the method of malice, Bob made sure to advise Chris on what actions to refrain from taking. The only ways you can harm me are with your arms or your teeth. I can make it so you'll never be able to use your arms again, and I can surely take your teeth. Try to escape, and you'll be dead. Chris could barely even plan his escape for the next few days since he was always either asleep or groggy from the drugs drugs Bob was giving him. On Wednesday morning, a routine was established by now. Bob was to be satisfied sexually immediately after waking each day. It was incumbent upon Chris to perform this duty before Bob went to sleep at night. Bob informed Chris that he was open to negotiation when it came to the other ways in which he was treating him. He was inflexible about the sex. Chris was not allowed to cry or complain about any of those terms. Every morning after the requisite sex act, Bob would put Chris on his back, bind his hands and feet, and tie him to the bedpost once again. He would put the washcloth back over Chris's mouth to ensure that his anguish would remain inaudible to the outside world. He would tie the dog collar around his neck and secure him to the bed frame. Before Bob left the room, he would turn on a television and crank the volume up as far as it could go. He didn't want Chris to hear when he was coming up or going down the stairs. Smart. Mm -hmm. Um, The torture to which Bob subjected Chris was inflicted with as much regularity as the rape. The electrodes, the iron pipe, and the injections of drain cleaner into his throat, it had become customary by then. I, I don't know how this guy survived with he's got more fortitude than Polly Ming. I I have been put through some stuff with the military. I don't know if I could have put up with this. Um Chris developed another fever. Bob gave him pills telling him that they were antibiotics. Uh on Thursday night, Bob returned home with cigarettes, Polaroid film, and two rented movies. The Lost Boys and RoboCop. Gonna make you you never want to watch those movies again. Mm -hmm. I mean, RoboCop wasn't the best movie, but you know, I I think RoboCop was was actually military. I mean, the man died, and they still made him go to work. Yeah, Um, sounds about right. Before the night's festivities, Bob took a photo of Chris. He untied his hands and legs, and he led him to the bathroom by the dog collar. While Chris was occupied in there, Bob tied the leash to a rail and returned to the bedroom where he changed the sheets. That was nice of him. Oh, yes. He changed the sheets. Don't want to get bed sores. God forbid. Oh. That's okay. He's getting penicillin. He'll be fine. Yeah. Like, smidgen of it. Yeah. After Chris was finished in the shower, Bob untied the leash and walked him back to the bedroom. He tied the leash to the bedpost and he told Chris to pose with particular emphasis on flexing his muscles. Bob snapped several pictures. He raped Chris again before tying him down for the night. Chris asked Bob for permission to speak. He persuaded Bob that being tied to the bed with his hands over his head was very uncomfortable and cut off the circulation to his arms. Friday morning, after the first rape of the day, that's that's so horrible to say. It's like, oh, I don't need coffee. I need to rape somebody. Yeah. Bob tied Chris's hands in front of him. He wrapped the rope around his legs. Chris discovered that day that he could loosen his hands if he really worked at it. He was still scared of what would happen if Bob happened to come into the room at that moment. Saturday morning, 
so keep in mind, the last one was, what, four weeks. Everything we're talking about right now has only been four days. This has only this been four seems, days. This, this seems like four months. Yeah. Chris had now been in Bob's house for four days. He was preoccupied with escaping. He said a prayer in request to give him a signal when the opportunity to flee would present itself. I'll keep that to myself. Uh, Bob tied Chris back up after raping him. Chris asked Bob if he would record some sporting events with a VCR. And for those of you that are watching that don't know, a VCR is where you put a tape in. A tape is, is, is a... This a jab, is this a jab of me being older than you? No. Because I, I know... We're probably going to have some have some people watch, listening that don't know what a VCR is. This is exactly is. how I used to do things back in the day. Listen, I used to use listen. a VCR and tape things. I, I saw a TikTok today that some girl was saying, I you know what a good invention would be is if we had a singular phone in the house that everybody could use. I was like, oh my God, uh, it's a house phone. We already invented that years ago. God, the you long, me feel old. The long cord that you can wrap yeah. up people like an extension God. with like a boa constrictor. Um, so Bob told, Bob told him he hadn't set up the VCR for recording. Chris had asked him if he would place the remote control to the television between his legs so he could change the channels. Bob consented to this and bound Chris's hands in front of him instead of over his head. Once Bob left the house, Chris began squirming with, with Ernest to pry himself loose from the knots on his wrists. His efforts began to yield fruit. The ropes were loosening. After about 20 minutes, his right hand was free, and he used it to untie his left hand. With both of his hands free, he listened carefully to ascertain if Bob was still in the house, and he heard nothing. So Bob was still gone. Um, he then reached up and untied the gag, whose knot had been tied behind his head. From there, he pulled the leash off. He couldn't get the dog collar off of his neck. He wasn't about to let this stop him. His feet were still tied to the end posts. So that was something else to focus on. He was terrified of being electrocuted again. Um, that he experienced a tactile hallucination, leading him to believe that a current of electricity was running through the bed frame. Yeah. He spotted a pack of matches on the left side of the bed. Bob left them out there after lighting a cigarette for Chris that morning. Again, here's the mistakes. He got too comfortable and he's making mistakes. Um, Chris snatched them up. He used them to burn the ropes that were that tied his feet. Um, he climbed off the bed, looked to the window. It occurred to him that it might've been nailed shut. He decided to try opening it anyway. And it opened. So he jumps from the second floor. And when he lands, he actually breaks his foot. But, I'm surprised it's only broke. But his adrenaline was rushing so much that he didn't even feel it. He had no idea it was broken until he got to an ambulance. Um, So he rushes across the street and approaches a meter reader from the water department. Could you... So this is this is what Ben. <laughs> I used to be a meter reader. This for is the what gas Ben used company. to do. Could you imagine sitting there reading a meter and this naked dude just runs out to you? Because this dude was naked the whole time. This uh, naked dude with we're... with a collar. 
broke. We, we are tra- we're trained to watch out for dogs and, <laughs> and traffic, uh, naked guys. No, no, that's I can't say that we were ever trained for that to happen. I mean, honestly, just I, just by morbid curiosity, I would often go into places and I just I would look, look at the house. I'm like, that there's a serial ser- yeah. killer lives here. Any uh, money. So he runs up to the meter reader and says, hey, call the police for me. That son of a bitch is crazy. He's trying to kill me. So they end up, the meter reader and Chris end up walking up to a house directly across the street, which was the house of Felix Duran Jr. The guy answered the door, recognized the meter reader, but not the naked young man wearing a dog collar. Uh, He looks at Chris saw that he was scratched up and was limping and he was reluctant to let him into the house. So he closed the door on him and, but he uh-huh. called, he called nine one one though. Um, when he Smart. returned, to the, when he returned to the front door, the naked man was sitting in front on the front steps. So the meter reader went off, did his job and Chris stayed on the front steps. I wouldn't have left if I was the meter reader. No. But- um, I mean, I think although your, I think your company would have said, uh, okay. no, no, actually my, my company that, um, we are told, uh, my company said we we're more or less told to put blinders on when, when it comes to going into homes and seeing stuff. Now, granted, I don't yeah, think but this they is would, a little different. This, this is different. I, 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 I like also, to think you're, I, you're a witness to. A, a crime, po- a, a possible crime that the police are going to want to talk to you because you were the first contact to a victim. You'd be surprised. I, I, I like to say you're right, but at the then, then again, you didn't know my foreman. But technically, you could get in trouble for leaving because of oh, yeah. contacts because you are technically a suspect at that point. Um, yeah. So this was April second, nineteen eighty-eight, at ten thirty-eight a.m. Um. <laughs> And this this article states it perfectly. Neither Chris nor the meter reader nor Felix Duran Jr. was aware of the Pandora's box of horrors that was about to explode all over Charlotte Street from Bob's house. Um, the police arrived to Duran's house. Officer Larry Lewis was the first on scene. He questioned Christopher Bryson. He assumed it was a matter of BDSM that had gotten out of hand. Um, he, so he asked Chris, did your lover do this to you? And Chris's throat hurt. Obviously he's been injected with multiple things. Don't know how he didn't die from it. Probably the penicillin that saved his life. Just kidding. It didn't. No. <laughs> um, he, I, I mean, I'm thinking about it at that point. Like your wife's allergic to penicillin, right? So, yeah, could you imagine? Could you imagine if Chris had been allergic to penicillin, he would have killed him. Yeah. Um. With. Not, yeah. Yeah. No, they put, he, it he, did at, his, he did at least seven cc's of it. It would have killed him. Especially yeah, because yeah. right now, with everything that's happening to him, his immune system is weakened. That is true. So it would have killed him. Um. But um, he shook his head no. Um, the officer said, "How bad are you hurt?" And the meter reader actually was there. Uh, the meter reader said he jumped out of the window. So he did not leave. He was there. He said a, he saw him jump out of the window. Um, and then the officer asked Chris where he was. And he pointed to Bob's house. 
at 4315 Charlotte Street. After asking him for his full name, age, he asked Chris what happened to him. Uh, one detail that particularly stoked the officer's interest was that Bob had showed Chris Polaroids of other men who were treated the same way, but these men appeared to be dead. So now he's got a witness to numerous crimes. So your victim is now a witness for other victims. Um, after getting the statement, Lewis called for an ambulance and got a blanket from his car in which Chris could cover himself. Glad you did that after the statement. Um, you're just letting that man sit there naked while you're questioning just, him. I just imagine as like, so you're having a field interview yeah. with a naked guy yeah. in a dog car. <sighs> yeah. Okay. Okay, I guess and, Kansas City does call, things differently. And you didn't call for the ambulance right away. That should have been the first thing you did. Um, <sighs> after being interviewed by another officer, he was taken to the hospital. Everybody keep in mind that being a, being interviewed by multiple officers is very common. Um, we may not, especially in states of shock, you may not get the story right. So being able to get multiple officers to ask you even if that story changes, you find the similarities and you're able to put the pieces together. I'm, I'm, I'm just still a little flabbergasted that they didn't call the ambulance and medical assistance first, because yeah. I can only, obviously there was no pictures of what this, what he looked like after and, and immediately after. So we, but I can imagine he's probably pretty rough looking. Oh, I yeah, I'm sure. So I, I, I just can't. I, straight. I, of torture. If I were the officer sergeant, I would have been like, so when did it occur to you to, you know, yeah. cover him up, call an ambulance? I'm, I'm, surprised, I'm surprised Chris wasn't puking everywhere from all the stuff that was being injected into his body. I'm sure he was. I'm sure he was. He probably just didn't, he either didn't notate it or whatever the, re, the, the materials we looked up just didn't annotate, just didn't mention it. I, I, I have a very limited medical background, but I can imagine his nobody has that strong of a constitution. They're not puking. Um, 11.30 a.m., Bob pulls up, and officers Lloyd Harvey and Cynthia Cherry. It's interesting names. Cynthia Cherry. She sounds like a stripper. Um, maybe that's what she did before. No judgment. Uh, uh, if Officer Cherry, if you're listening to this, we, we mean nothing to buy it. Uh, Officer Cherry's... She may still be alive. Um, depends on how old she was. I Hope mean, this, so. this is the Hopefully. 80s. Yeah, um, Officer Cherry, uh, if you would like us to interview you, please. Um, I'm, I'm sorry very for calling you a stripper. Uh, but if if you are, we'll still interview you. Um, oh, God. <laughs> um, so they were waiting in front of the house. He walked up to their cruiser. And Officer Cherry rolled her window down. Um, Bob asked what was going on. She asked who he was. He said, I'm Bob Berdella. Harvey and Cherry exchanged glances, knowing that they had their man. Uh, Harvey steps out and says, you're being arrested for the investigation of sexual assault. Wouldn't say arrested, but Harvey read Berdella his Miranda rights. Good job at reading your Miranda rights. Like, if out of everything in the situation, at least you got that one. Down. Okay, so I'm going to say this. 
this is kind of a pet peeve of mine. People th- watch TV and they think that they're they know everything. When you are arrested, when those handcuffs go on, Miranda rights do not have to be read to you. They only no. must be read to you before any line of questioning. Also, if they are not read to you and they do not ask you anything, but you say, oh, this happened, that can still be used in the court of law. It's called spontaneous utterance. So mm-hmm. be careful. And I'm just going to tell you this now. And I think my my dad, who is a 20-year cop, will tell you the same thing. If you're being questioned about a crime, call a lawyer first. Do not answer oh, the cop's questions yeah. without a lawyer present. Trust me, you are not going to outsmart the detective. Mo- that doesn't most happen. Cops, most cops are going to tell you the same thing. Yes, we want answers. We want to solve the crime. But please do so with a lawyer present. Save yeah. yourself. You do not want to incriminate yourself on anything. Um, so... He, they handcuffed him. Uh, apparently, he began to tremble uncontrollably. Probably at this point, the shock is starting yeah, to wear started, off, and it's all coming at him. He started to panic, and as he's being cuffed, he started to tremble. Um, and once inside the car, Berdella asked what's happening here, and Cherry said, well, we're investigating a report of alleged sexual assault. Would you be willing to sign a consent to search to let us look in your house? He asked what for, and she said to check out the victim's report. He asked what the name was. She said Christopher. I personally would not have said that. Um, she did, did she give the last name or just she, say Christopher? No, she did good here. He said, what's, what's his last name? She said, I don't feel I'm at liberty to go into that right now. Uh, that's so that was good, good, but I still would not have given the first name. Um Christopher's a pretty generic name. I mean, yeah, but if it's, a, if it's a victim, you're going to be able to connect it. You're, I, I personally would have said, now, don't worry about it. In today's now, again, this is the '80s. It's a little different. Um, now today's today's day and age, you're not going to give the victim's name at all. Um, no, no, especially no. to your suspect. Um, at least not at that point. Uh, he asked, where is he? And Lewis said, that's none of your business. We got him and he's talking. So good on them there. Uh, this, apparently this has turned into a police critique. Um, which which we're not trying to do. It's just, no, it's, it's not. I'm just giving trying my to do experiences. This is just too, this is something that happens with us a lot when we're talking about, about crime stuff. We we get to the crime part and like, yeah, well, what did the cops do? Yeah. And then we just turn into a bunch of armchair generals. Yeah. Uh, Cherry said, you don't have to sign the consent, but we can easily get a search warrant for your house. Um, and Robert Perdella said, well, if you won't give me any more information, I'll have to respectfully decline letting you into my house. And the cops said, okay, fine. Um, as I started the car and left, uh, Robert Perdella once again said, what is going on here? Um, and Harvey said, Christopher says you've had him tied up for several days. Uh, Berdella repeated, this is not right. This is not right. Harvey said, you don't have to talk, you know, and Berdella said, this is not right. Um, <laughs> this is one thing I did a lot as a cop, especially if somebody was annoying after I read them the Miranda rights, I would remind them 
that part of their Miranda rights Shut is up. the right to remain silent. And I would say you have the right to remain silent. I suggest you use it at this time. I, I remember one time I had a DUI. The guy, the, the passenger was just like, oh, man, I don't know what's going on, man. I'm like, I was like, dude, just shut up. Just stop talking. It's all being recorded. Just, just shut up. Yeah. Like, so <laughs> Bordello was escorted to the sex crimes unit. Um, he did the right thing and refused to speak without an attorney. Uh, police submitted the required criteria for a search warrant. Um, Bordello was informed he was being investigated for sodomy. Uh, the officers assumed that the incident likely arose out of a lover's quarrel. So at this point, they're just assuming that this is BDSM gone wrong. It's still a crime, everybody. It's still rape. No means yeah. no. Yes. Military drilled that into us every weekend. No means no. Um, Which is true. Yes. It's no. Um, at 2.12 p.m., search warrant was in hand. Police kicked in the front door of Robert Berdella's house. Um, they had been advised that there were large aggressive dogs on the premises, so animal control was there. Uh, his house was a cluttered mess. Almost every inch was covered with papers, brown paper bags filled with books and magazines. There we go. So it's probably his research. There were plastic garbage bags filled with clothes, large and small knickknacks, and garbage. So this man on the outside was very neat. On the inside, very messy. Which is weird because with the way he writes the book, he seems very OCD. So it, it's it's odd. Little, I almost have my own little theory about that. I, I kind of feel like the, the note-taking and everything was also kind of part of the of like the fetish the thing oh, that got yeah, him his off. ritual yeah i mean it, his, like, his ritual it, like that was as much a part of the actual assault and the torture was he would just go back and that was his way to relive oh, that it was like, his, that was his porn he would go back and look at the read that and look at the pictures so i i don't think so much it, it really doesn't i don't i would probably wouldn't surprise me if he wasn't OCD at all like obviously from the way this describes this isn't someone who's a, a type A personality this is somebody who is very chaotic and something's not right up in the head so apparently there the second they walked in there was a strong scent of dog feces piles of it were all over the place um in the kitchen, a spoiled turkey sat in a pot and admitted to its own rancid contribution to the stench. And the sink was filled with dirty dishes. So this man was not clean at all. Um, animal control handlers removed the dogs. Police searched the other rooms. There was no sign of foul play. They even began to wonder if someone might have cleaned up the scene before their arrival. So they split up and searched all the rooms. Officer Metzger walked through a bedroom toward another door. He heard a television. He raised his shotgun and opened the door. He yelled, Sarge, here it is. What the other officers saw when they came into the room was a bed with burnt ropes attached to the post at the foot. Bathrobe sashes were tied to the head post. The window was open. The storm window was loose. There was an electrical transformer on the floor. It was plugged into a wall socket. The wires led to the bed. On a bedside table lay a metal tray. It contained syringes small prescription drug bottles, ointments, and eyedroppers. Metzger left the room and returned to the adjoining room, where he found a shoebox in a wooden wardrobe. 
stuck above the side of the box was a sheaf of Polaroid photos. Pulling them out, he saw the first few photos were of Christopher Bryson. He was pale, naked, and visibly distressed. Metzger showed them to the other officers. In the other photos, Bryson had a pillowcase or bag over his head. In some, he was face down with it, and his hands were tied behind his back. In every picture, it appeared he was being tortured. Guys, if you're going to commit a crime, don't take pictures of it. Yeah. Just incriminating yourself. Uh, Sergeant Troy Cole returned to the bedroom. There were several objects placed at different points around the room. Gay pornographic magazines, wide leather belts, rope of varied lengths, bottle bottles of drugs in liquid form, and a 29-inch iron pipe on the bed. Hours later, Robert Berdella's house was crawling with cops. Um, they continued to find strange objects, but not all of them were definitively incriminating. Unfortunately, what I'll say is, yes, they found the the pictures of Chris seemingly being tortured, but of course in the BDSM world, it's part of it. Um, until, I mean, if you combine those with the victim statement of no, I did not consent to this, then yeah, you've, you've got the case. Um, but it's still without firm evidence that case will be thrown out. That case will be dropped. Um, at, at the very, very most that would happen without strict evidence is Robert Burdella would, or Chris would have a restraining order against Robert Burdella, and that's it. Um, at one point, Detective Randall Morris waded through the clutter until he stopped to have a look at a human skull. It had sat underneath a glass dome, which had been placed on a small table. He wondered if it was real. He spotted a couple books. He picked them up. One of their titles was How to Create Poisons and the Antidotes to Them. Which is probably, this. like you said, this is probably where Robert Bedell was learning his stuff. He wasn't, it's all learning from a book with no actual real world firsthand experience to back this up. This was... What really strikes me when I think when I was researching this and looking up, what really spoke to me was spider. I think I mentioned this earlier. This is a spider. Like somebody would. Most of these people came into his web and became their his unfortunate victims. Like this doesn't not your typical. I guess I, we've we've been saying this throughout the, whole, the episode. This is not a very typical serial killer. This is different that's i guess really the best way to sum it up is different yeah i looking for the book and i don't see it this book must not be in production anymore sure the after this was released the book probably was taken off the shelves um fbi please don't come after me for searching that um morris stepped over a pile of books as he walked towards the closet when he opened the door, his eyes were immediately drawn to the center shelf. Another human skull looked back at him. It looked real. Morris called out to the rest of the officers that they had a skull, and they all joined him. He leaned forward to have a closer look at the skull. As he did, he saw two envelopes on the lower shelves. They were lumpy. 
He picked up one of them. It wasn't sealed. He opened the flap and it was filled with human teeth. Eesh. This is where we're starting to get incriminating evidence. Um, and then the biggest incriminating evidence here in another room, Berdella's notebook was discovered. That'll do it. The starting date, at least for that log, was June 23rd, 1987. 13 audio tapes were found in the clothing drawer. Sergeant Roy Orth lifted Berdella's mattress and looked underneath. He saw a clear plastic bag. He reached in and pulled out several Polaroid photos, most of which were portraits of naked men. In the same bag were 14 pages of handwritten notations featuring carefully annotated times and dates. Some photos were bound with rubber bands, while others were placed in sandwich bags. Orth put the notes aside and focused on what he saw in the photos. In many shots, a carrot or cucumber protruded from the model's anus. Man, oh, it gives a new meaning to toss your salad. Yeah. <laughs> there was a picture of a naked man hanging upside down. He was tied with rope at both angles, and he was hanging from the ceiling in what appeared to be a basement. Obviously, we know that this was the first victim. Um, uh, he then told his captain he believes that they have more than sodomy on their hands after seeing that. Uh, forensic anthropologist Dr. Michael Finnegan, if you're out there, please, we'll, we'd love to interview you, um, was called in to evaluate the skulls and teeth. Finnegan examined the skulls and pronounced that the one kept under the glass likely had been kept for a very long time. He surmised that the other skull had most likely belonged to a young white male. He said the teeth were most likely extracted from the latter skull. Another officer opened a suitcase and found more Polaroids of young men. Some had plastic trash bags over their heads. There were more notes with times and dates, encrypted details. In the same suitcase, a wallet was found. A fucking idiot. ID indicated that it was the property of one Walter James Ferris. Get rid of the evidence. Don't keep the fucking wallet. As you said, this may have, this turn, for looking at it, just if I'm a defense attorney, I would be, at, from the beginnings of this surge, I would say, well, this is just BD, BDSM that obviously is going to extreme length, but there's no evidence to say that my client did anything other than having bad hygienic practices and engaging in questionable sexual fetishes. All perfectly legal. But as we're going forward, it's like you said, get rid of the evidence. So Don't keep the skulls. Don't well, keep the teeth. Okay, so the, the skull and the teeth, you could, as a defense attorney, you could still play it off. I mean, Bob's bizarre, bizarre. He sells weird True. stuff. He could have acquired that. He sells stuff overseas, gets stuff from overseas. It It's possible. Um, same thing with the teeth. But when you start getting the pictures... And back then, it wouldn't have been able to happen. But now, what we would have been able to do is take one of those pictures that had the victims without the bag on it, take the skull, do a mock-up, and you would have been able to identify which victim it was. Back then, obviously, oh. they couldn't do that. No, you're right. Plus, obviously, DNA was was very still much in its infancy then, yeah. and... So, but I'm sure the shock value of seeing a jury 
seeing that at a trial would have probably convicted him regardless, even if, if even if by some in a bizarre other dimension that he wasn't guilty, that probably would have sealed his fate because they would have looked at that and been like, "Yeah, you're go away." Yeah. So at the top of one of Berdella's notes was the word Ferris. When police called the name into dispatch, Ferris was reported as a missing person. Uh, on the first floor, an envelope was found containing newspaper articles about missing men. Um, so some more trophies in the basement. The investigators looked around carefully to see if it was indeed the spot where the hanging man was tortured and killed. They spotted dried blood on a bag of dog food. Looking for a source, the officers looked up at the ceiling. Their assumption was that the blood dripped down from the first floor. They discovered what looked like a smudged floor print or sock print on a beam. They figured it had it had to have been made by someone who was hanging. A styrofoam cooler was spattered with droplets of blood. A rectangular space in the corner that measured about three feet long by four feet wide had been filled with fresh concrete. There were other items strewn throughout Berdella's house that struck the police as odd. They found several masks. One had a malevolent appearance with its dark fur. It was propped on a post in the second floor bedroom. There were small masks made of plaster, which resembled shrunken heads. The two skulls and the bulk of masks were found in the third bedroom, which was on the second floor. The detectives named this space the artifact room. Of course, this is what he does. He sells oddities. This, this would be pretty common. Um, Detective Bill Earhart opened a closet to see what what might be hidden therein. After sifting through assorted clutter, he found a clear plastic bag. This bag was of interest because it contained several bones. It wasn't immediately obvious what species the bones had been extracted from, but Dr. Orth said that they were human vertebrae. So he's keeping vertebrae as well. Other photos of men who were hanging and engaging in sex acts with other men were found and entered as evidence. There's a large cache of mail address addressed to other men. These names and the men in Bob's notes were cataloged by detectives. So when they moved in, they were folk getting mail forwarded to his house. Another point of evidence um, that places them there. Mm-hmm. Um Nevertheless, they still had not found definitive evidence that Robert Berdella was a murderer. After all, his own confirmed victim was alive. So, um, without without a body, again from a defense attorney, this is again you you need to be Johnny at this point. You need to be Johnny Cochran level of good defense attorney yeah. to get this to think of even have a chance to get out. You could say this is just extreme gay porn. There's no bodies. These yes, these men are missing, but so far, you don't have any. Uh, you don't have any evidence that these men were there. They they were here, or that they've been here in a certain amount of time before they disappeared. Again, though, this is still not looking good for him. For yeah. for old Bob, it's not <laughs> looking good because now the because I guarantee you the police are the the investigating officers, the detectives, and the uniforms that are there are probably thinking like. Holy crap, what have we just stumbled upon? Yeah, so police had to come up with some charge that would stick. Missouri law at the time requires that, and still does, uh, as far as I know, requires that police charge a suspect within 24 hours of their arrest. Uh, Failing this, they would be released. It was Saturday night, and an arrest warrant had to be obtained by 7.30 a.m. 
This meant that Christopher Bryson would either have to pick Bordella out of a lineup or identify him from photos if he were still in the hospital. Um, they would have to determine that Bryson did not give his consent to become the recipient of torture and bondage. And they also made a point to check his history to ensure he would be a credible witness in court. I would, I would argue, and again, this is not victim blaming or anything, but considering that Christopher was a, did go over there in with the implied intention of a sexual, of a paid sexual act, since he was a male acting as a male prostitute from a defense attorney. This is, this is a comp credibility wise. It's compromised. Obviously we know this is not, that doesn't mean just because you're a sex worker does not mean that it is okay to do these horrific things to you or any kind of sexual assault. But the reality to the justice system is, is that sex workers often do not make the best credible witnesses because of their line of work with yeah. the tattoos and stereotypes that, uh, that go along with it for better or for worse. So, um, but like I said, in this case, this was not a, no, who, who would consent to this? Good yeah. God. Um, Detectives Roy Orth and Ashley Hearn questioned Chris at the hospital. Um, he had told them, uh, he told me he was never going to let me go, but if I cooperated, he'd take me to someplace in Wyoming where the nearest civilization was an hour away. And there was other people there who liked to do what he does. And he told me if I didn't do everything he told me to do every time, he'd kill me. I think he was just trying to totally dominate me mentally, so I do everything he wanted. He just wanted total control. They showed him mugshots. He picked Bordella. Um, search of Bordella's house resumed the next day. Uh, they a uh, neighbor informed them that he did a lot of gardening after dark, so they sought a search warrant uh, to search Bordella's business as well. Uh. Detective Hearn and Lee Floyd went to the business on a shelf in the window. There were four human skulls and a piece of paper taped to the shelves that read the final four. They were found to be cultural and archaeological artifacts, though. Oh, yeah. I was about um, to say, I'm like, oh, that's good bold. God. Uh, <laughs> I was like 3.30 p.m. A backhoe was brought into Berdella's backyard to search for incriminating evidence. Pounding the soil with picks axes had turned up nothing. So they went deeper. Um, when they finally found something protruding, uh, there was hair attached to it. Other patches of hair were scattered nearby. They didn't just find a skull this time. They unearthed an entire head, skin and everything. Um, the stench of death permeated the air. The body to which the head had been attached was nowhere to be found, though the lower jaw was located nearby. Uh, Leads began to trickle in regarding the history with young men. Um, Bonnie Ferris had told police she last saw her husband in December 1985 and that he was going to visit Robert Berdella. We know where that went to. Um, things were not going well for Berdella. When the judge signed the warrant for his arrest, he wrote no bond and he was charged with nine felony counts. Uh, Paul Howell, the father of Jerry Howell, went to the arraignment with a gun in his pocket. When he saw a metal detector, he ditched it. While in the courtroom, he attacked Berdella, punching him in the face. Bailiffs wrestled him to the floor. He tried to reach for one of their pistols, and he was escorted out. 
<laughs> we um, understand that. Oh, I would do the same thing. I'll tell you that right now. If anybody touched my I, daughter, I, I I would have been smarter about it, but that's yeah. just me personally. Um, Judge the metal Asper- detector would not have stopped me. Yeah, Judge Asperdella, if he could afford a lawyer, he told him he could. Judge set bond at five hundred thousand dollars. Keep in mind, this is in the eighties. That is close to a million dollars in today's market, I believe. Uh, that that's oh, a, I would never have taken the chance. That's a I lot never, of money. I would um, have put it up with no bail, no remand, just stick them in there and just wait for the trial. Berdella asked to be placed in protective custody. Uh, judge told him the jail administration would handle it. Uh, the excavation resumed of the backyard. They dug up more bones. Um, some other kind of decomposed white material also emerged. Uh, they were human vertebrae. He suspected they might have belonged to the skull that was found the previous day, and they were verified. On April 5th, they examined the rest of the photographs. Uh, Berdella performing anal sex. Berdella per- receiving oral sex. Men with syringes sticking out of their necks. Men with electrodes attached to their testicles. Men tied to the bed. Men with gags around their mouths. Men whose eyes bulged from fright. Men whose spirits had become enfeebled by learned helplessness. Um, there was one with Bardella shoving a cucumber inside of a man. Bardella pushing their legs up over their heads to have frontal sex with them. Uh, Bardella faced a possible life sentence in the event of a conviction. The judge was shown the Polaroids. Uh, he recalled what he heard about Christopher Bryson's hardship at Bradella's house. He considered what he was told about the skulls and vertebrae dug up in the backyard. Problem was, there was no evidence that the bones belonged to any of the men in Bradella's photos. Um, and there was no evidence of any murders having been committed at that juncture. Dr. Finnegan finished his analysis of the two skulls. They belonged to Caucasian males. He estimated that the skull found in the backyard likely belonged to a man who is between 25 and 36. He pointed out that the vertebrae found with the skull bore knife cuts and saw marks. The subject was dead for a minimum of six weeks or for as long as 10 months. Skull found inside the house was of a man aged between 21 and 32 years old. It had been buried at some point, but was later dug up. The teeth in the envelope were a match for said skull. Scrape marks implied that the victim was scalped. Determining the cause of death was always difficult. Uh, they continued to search for incriminating material. More books were found. Subject matter was well-rounded, ranging from sadism to recipes to hardcore pornography. Uh, he had newspaper clippings everywhere. Um, he had famous criminals. Murderers uh, Elmer Wayne Henley and Charles Tex Watson piqued his interest. Um, Kansas City's so-called Westport rapist of the 1970s, James Maynard, was another one. Um, but none of these proved he was a murderer. Uh, let's see. Most of the bones didn't show anything. To improve their chances of obtaining evidence that Berdella killed the men whose bodies were discovered, an officer and two of the crime lab techs paid Berdella a visit. They took samples of his hair from the scalp, mustache, and groin. He was also ordered to disrobe since parts of his body were seen in the photos minus his head. Man, those two must have been low on the totem pole. Uh, oh, the guys in charge of that detail? Yeah. yeah. 
He there, was, there's a fat serial killer. Go take pictures of yeah. his of his private parts. He was instructed to pose I do? in tableaus of some of the sexual positions they were seen in the photos. He was questioned by police but refused to admit anything. He was steadfast in his uh, insistence of being represented by an attorney. Back of the house, a chainsaw was found uh, to bear traces of blood. They also found other cutting implements. Um, they found a circular saw, two hedge clippers, a black ceremonial knife, a pair of scissors, three butcher knives, a set of steak knives, hand shears, a dismantled saber saw, hacksaw, miter saw, two box cutters, two wire saber cutters, and 14 saw blades. Um, wow. So all of the relatives of the missing men started submitting dental records. And then this is what was entered into evidence to be ver- verified. A skull belonging to victim Larry Pearson's a skull belonging to victim Larry Pearson was proven to be his via dental records. Uh, so that's one. Pearson was seen in at least 60 of the Polaroids the police found at Berdella's house. 60, 60. He was naked in the photos. He is being seen sodomized. Relatives and other close associates of Larry Pearson confirmed it was him they saw in the pictures. Imagine being that cop that has to show those pictures. Uh, I hope to God they didn't show these to the families. They, did, they just said they did. They needed oh, to. I, well, sorry. Uh, they needed to, to to get a positive ID. They needed they needed a victim ID. Uh, in photos where his face is covered, a scar on his right leg was corroborated to be his own. The saw marks on Pearson's vertebrae was proven to have been made with saw blades that belonged to Berdella. No evidence could be gleaned from this that Berdella murdered Pearson, however. So there was, yes, he was murdered. Yes, he was raped. They are getting him on the sodomy, but they can't get him on the rape yet. Or on the murder. True. It's true. I, it's, I, it's all circumstantial evidence. It is. I, I, I still, just from a practical standpoint, I, I, if if I'm a juror and I'm hearing this, it's it's not going to take. A, I understand, you know, juries are told, you, you know, reasonable doubt, and I was, but as like, so you sexually assaulted him, you disposed of his body, you did all this, but you didn't murder him in his home. Yeah, yeah, no. On July, no, 20- I, 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 go ahead. Oh, sorry. Um, no, no. no. On July 22nd, the grand jury indicted Robert Berdella on one count of first-degree murder. The indictment stated that between the dates June 7th, 1987 and April 3rd, 1988, Berdella, upon deliberation, knowingly caused the death of Larry Pearson. No particular cause of death was determined. In keeping with Missouri Penal Code, the punishment meted, uh, meted out for the crime of murder is life imprisonment without parole or death by lethal injection. August 3rd, the arraignment started. We're not going to get into all of that. At the arraignment, it was... Uh, there's a whole transcript of the arraignment. It's basically him just going over everything. Basically, um, public defenders presented new conditions, assisted on by Berdella. If they dropped the civil suit to seize Berdella's house, he would drop the countersuit. Um, he wanted Christopher Bryson to sign a waiver stating that he would not initiate litigation against Berdella. Um then basically the trial was held on September 2nd to the murder of Robert Sheldon. There was no definitive cause of death. Um, 
and the so there they go through basically he had a trial for each one where he did begin to confess um and then I'm going to we're again we're not going to go through all that cuz he he just kind of goes over what he did to each victim um and he is just he does go into graphics he he goes over what each of the things mean bf means he uh butt fuck uh, that was his shorthand for that. Um, and let's see. I find my place here. I mean, honestly, I mean, I, for what I, for what we read at this point, Robert Burdell knows he's done at this point. He is, he is pleading guilty and this is just an attempt for him to, uh, basically avoid the death penalty because any prosecutor worth their salt is probably already looking for, up. Oh, I can get that lethal injection. I mean, that honestly was kind of the reason why Ted Bundy is probably not still alive in prison today was because uh, he when he escaped escaped from prison, he went off to hit the Florida, and then he um, resumed his killings in Florida. And they decided to try him in yeah. Florida, even even though he comparatively most of his murders, the most amount of murders were done in Washington State, as opposed to I, I believe the eight five or eight that he committed in Florida, but Florida had the, not only had the death penalty, they had the electric chair. So nobody was going to, they were going to, if I, uh, fun fact, David, um, Ted Bundy was the last person in Florida yep. to be killed by, uh, uh, not killed, executed by the electric chair. Yep. Um, so to round it all up, Robert Bradello is convicted of one count of first degree murder for the death of Robert Sheldon. He received four charges of second degree murder. He agreed to plead guilty and confess in detail to the crimes to ensure that he would not receive the death penalty. Berdella attempted to rehabilitate his public image while incarcerated. He did some interviews with the media and insisted while doing so that he was a sensitive citizen who had simply made mistakes. He also felt he had been unfairly demonized by the press during the legal proceedings. Um, Berdella had heart disease and alleged that prison staff withheld the medication he took to manage the condition, which I will say it probably did happen um, because that's what happens. If you're a piece of shit, you get treated like shit. Um, mm -hmm. He's lucky he did not get killed in prison. Um, I mean, um, also to be, to be fair, the prison system's not the best in the world. Yeah. So it's entirely possible. They just, just didn't have his medicine. And they were just like, oh, well. Yeah. On October 8th, 1992, I was not even a year old yet. Um, he complained to staff of discomfort in his chest. He was taken from the prison infirmary to the hospital. He died from a heart attack at 3.55 p.m. at the age of 43. On his business oh, cards, oh, oh. Bordella identified. It's funny that he died the same way his dad did. 
<laughs> um, at almost the same age. On his business cards, Burdell identified as the Dragon Nagari. He described his activities in the following terms. I rise from death. I kill death. And death kills me. I resuscitate the bodies I have created and alive in death. I destroy myself. Although I carry poison in my head, the antidote can be found in my tail, which I bite with rage. Whoever bites me must first bite himself. Otherwise, if I bite him, death will bite him first in the head. Biting is a remedy against bites. And I was telling Caleb before we started when he told me that, I was like, that makes absolutely no no sense. Fucking sense. Yeah, so. Uh, The mind of a serial killer, everybody. Holy. So that was Robert Bradella. Um, And I believe also one of the the presiding judge of the case went informed that. Berdella had died, the judge uh, very sarcastically laughed and said, couldn't happen to a nicer guy. Yes, he did. And I agree with his honor. Yes. Um, so, yeah, that was Robert Berdella. Um As we said, probably, I mean, in terms of prolific, prolificant of, uh, I can't speak also, um, in terms of body count, not up there no, with others, no. others, but... I think what makes Robert Bradella very unique in the sense of this is that there is there is no one thing that in his past life in the development age that triggered him. There was no yes, there was some there was some there was abuse very clearly, but I mean, describe unless there's more detail, there's just not mentioned. Uh, this is. This is no more the abuse that happened that would have been suffered um, in other households. I can already tell from my family's history the amount of the abuse that happened in in the past in my family's past. This was probably worse. Yeah. Just comparison. If only my great grandfather had used the leather belt on my grandfather, I think my grandfather would have probably been leaping for joy. But some of the stuff that his his father did was pretty bad, even worse than that. But my grandfather father wasn't a serial killer nor was my great uncles or great aunts yeah so but i think this is my opinion on this i think robert burdell was just uh he was born bad robert burdell was born broken his mind was broken it just took a very long time in his life some people start early when they're children some in robert burdell's case he was near middle age when he finally got up the courage to just start killing people and doing this these horrible horrible things yeah and of course it everybody has or most people i know i do have this just weird infatuation with serial killers and it's not what they did at least for me it's what makes them do what they did i especially with my time in law enforcement, I like digging into the minds of what makes them this way, which is another reason that we will get into Ed Kemper. Of course, Ed Kemper uh, was actually trying to be a law enforcement officer and he would have been had he not, he not been a gigantor. Yeah. He couldn't fit in the cars and they didn't have a uniform big enough for him. 
Um, and no motorcycle would have ever carried him either. Yeah. So, um, but at some point we'll we will speak on him. Um, we're gonna we'll take we'll take the serial killers um, every few weeks or so. Give some people a break from those. Um, obviously, people like the macabre. We will do some macabre stories. Like, I, I'm, I'm a fan of the macabre. I, I like that kind of stuff. We'll do some ghost stories. We'll do some aliens. We'll do all of that kind of stuff. Um, if we do an aliens, we have to have your dad here. Yeah, we'll have to record it on a day's not working. Um, but yeah, so, um. So, uh, have a good night, everybody.